If you've ever gone over to the M&M's World shop in uh, Piccadilly Circus, well, after getting over the, the shock and awe of, of seeing all these M&M's, you may have noticed something that's actually a bit out of place about the whole thing, right? Well, the, the main wall in this shop is lined with tube after tube after tube of M&M's as you'd expect, but each one of them contain only one color, M&M. Each color is kept separate in different containers across this wall. And now the problem with this is that we know that M&Ms belong mixed together. They're supposed to be all jumbled up in a bag like a big, happy family, right? And so when we see M&M's separated, it's noticeably bizarre. Because that's not the way that things are supposed to be. And as we've studied the book of 1 Corinthians, we have seen how Paul wrote this letter to a congregation split apart over various controversies. They were divided into factions, like a bag of M&Ms portioned into canisters by color when they ought to be mixed together. They'd split along several different fault lines, making themselves look ridiculous by being separated rather than joined together. And as we come to the end of our studies through this letter, I think it might be helpful that we might draw together its threads so that we might come away with a a holistic picture of what to do with this book as we close its back cover, at least for now. Paul began this epistle all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2, by addressing the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and then get this part that prompts the whole letter called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In in other words, we see that from the get-go, Christian identity is shaped by being knit together in the Lord Jesus. Believers, regardless of where we're from and where we are, are called to be saints together. Christ is the Lord of all who believe in Him, all who are His saints. And so that calling brings us to faith in the Savior is also the calling that binds us to every other person who has faith in Him. But this was exactly the problem in Corinth. As as they were failing in this aspect of the Christian calling, Paul wrote in, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. 
Now, Paul went on to unpack these things. There was a whole host of issues that were splitting this Corinthian church, and we've seen a lot of them as we've worked through this letter. In the first section, in the first section, Paul confronted divisions about preaching. The congregation was divided according to their favorite preachers. Rather than accepting that different preachers have, because it was Paul, Apollos, Peter, were the main ones mentioned. Rather than accepting that different preachers have varying gifts, emphases, and styles, and being happy to be blessed differently by each of them, they began to size the preachers whom they personally preferred least, aligning themselves with the, the one that would they thought would increase their own prestige. Lessons abound there for churches who get to listen to multiple preachers. But then Paul took on several moral issues, splitting the church. Confusion over sexual issues created problems as immorality ran wild, including someone sleeping with his mother-in-law. And in addition, they were even confused about the role of, of sex within marriage, whereby even though they, they seemed to be fine permitting immorality, they were also suggesting that husbands and wives shouldn't give each other their conjugal rights. Some Christians were then even suing each other over issues that should have been handled within the church. And then, in the next section, the list goes on, we saw how some were insisting on their own rights to the extent of injuring the, con- the consciences of other believers, particularly particularly concerning issues about what good Christians can eat. And they needed to learn to prioritize others' good over what they wanted individually. There were divisions over worship. Things like observance of the Lord's Supper and the use of spiritual gifts within the church. And again, the Corinthians were worried about their own prestige, hoping the use of the supper and their gifts uh, could abound to their own renown rather than to the spiritual good of their brothers and sisters. And finally, and most importantly, the aired concerning the resurrection. And so Paul devoted his longest most rigorously argued section to correct this truly gospel issue. They needed to be reunited, and the primary thing that has the power to forge that unity is the gospel, the gospel that depends upon the Lord Jesus being raised from the dead. And now, here we come to our final chapter. Finding Paul's final direction and comments to this congregation. We find that in each section, what might appear to be a a disparate set of closing remarks aims at cementing Christian unity, even if in, in indirect ways. And so our main point is simply to hear the call for Christian unity. Let's hear the call for Christian unity. And we're going to think about this in three points together. A day for unity, a trip for unity, 
and a strategy for unity. First, let's look at a day for unity. And in the first section of Paul's closing remarks, he's talking about this issue of the need for the collection on the first day of the week. We'll give, and, and we're going to give our most detailed, we're going to get to every section here, but we're going to give our most detailed thought to verses 1 to 4. So let's just put our eyes on, on these verses together. Verse 1, now considering the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. And that simply reminds the Corinthians about the purpose of the financial collection, because we can go see what what Paul had told the Galatians is the purpose of this. He had signaled there that uh, James, so chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, James, Peter, and John agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do, namely the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so this particular collection was for Jewish Christians from Jerusalem in need. They'd fallen afoul of their community by becoming Christians and were cut off from their normal roots of resources. And Paul added then instructions about how to make this collection. Verse 2. And perhaps our most important verse for our considerations here. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And this point brings the consideration to new clarity that, that helps us better dive into our reflections about how this helps us think about church unity. So the sum, the assumption here is that the first day of the week plays an important role in the life of the church. The assumption is driven by how Christians always assembled on Sunday for gathered worship using the first day, this is the first day of the week, using the first day of the week as the Lord's day. Now note though that throughout this letter, Paul has dealt with matters of worship. He had a big, long section about this. And so we should not be surprised here that worship is driving his assumption about their practice that they will be together on the first day of the week for worship. Now, let's just let's pause for an aside here. Because there's actually something we can do that, that's very directly applicable. We see something that pertains to why we do the things we do in our worship. We should probably note this passage significance for our normal practice in our services. So, so uh, reformed churches, some of you are going to know this, some, some of you maybe it's new. We structure our services using this thing called the the 10-pound word, right? The regulative principle of worship. 
And what this means is, it's, it's actually very simple, even though it sounds fancy. It means that we do in worship only what the Word of God commands. We don't do anything other than what Scripture has instructs us to have in our worship. So the question of, well, does Scripture forbid it, is sort of irrelevant. The question is, does Scripture tell us to do it? And here we see that collection of financial contributions is an element of worship. We're supposed to do it. And that is why it's, it's, it's not just a pragmatic thing that we have a collection. Although we need it at the same time. This is why we pass around a, a plate or a bag to receive a physical offering on the Lord's Day. Although, I mean, we have to grant Recently, we've not been able to continue this practice under COVID restrictions. But at some point, it will be important to reinstate it. Because Now, the thing is, I realize, and I'm not criticizing, that there's an ease and even an importance to giving online. I know that, and that's fine. I think standing bank orders can actually help us uh, give generously, d- diligently, um, and certain amounts more easily. That's, that's fine. Nonetheless, here we see that we set aside something on the first day of every week. And perhaps, perhaps we might suggest that it's still useful for our souls to bring something, even if you give a, the bulk of your thing online, perhaps we still bring something. Fiber. You can take it out of, of what you plan to give every month. Right? And, and bring it each Lord's Day. Scripture tells us to bring a collection on the first day of week. And here's why I think this is useful. The, the physical act of putting notes in the collection reinforces the practical importance of worship. We, by doing a motion, During worship, we train ourselves to be giving and generous as we bodily give, not just digitally, as we bodily hand over funds to the church. Giving our gifts at specific places uh, in the order of, at specific moments, I suppose, in the order of service reinforces that our giving belongs to certain acts of worship, namely thankfulness. Giving isn't an act of confession. Giving giving certainly isn't purchasing God's favor, but is responding to it. So you'll see it happen during a song of thanksgiving or response, because that's what it is. That's the kind of motion it is. Now, I think the thing is, I debated whether or not to to even address this. But I think it is the practical question that people always have when we start to think about, because this is the regular giving. Am I supposed to tithe? Well, and there was, yeah, there's different views on this. And and what we can say, here's the thing, because I, I realize that there's not necessarily an explicit you have to tithe verse in the New Testament. But what we do see here 
is Paul say that each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Basically, as you can manage. And one of the Christian virtues throughout the New Testament is generosity. And so I think when we're, we're asking a question about, do I have to give 10%, we say, let's set aside that question of what, what amount do I have to give? What, cause it's kind of, what am I limited to? Or, or where do I get where then I'm above and beyond? And let's just say, well, for us, in, what, in whatever we have that we might prosper our giving, what's generous? I think that's the way that I actually want to leave that, is what's generous? Now, if we might move on from that, in verses 3 and 4, Paul explained how there could be a formal mechanism to convey this collection to the, the Jewish Christians in need. And now remember though, and this, this is important, we're not just dealing with a detail here for the sake of it. This, this conveying of this collection from, from Gentile Christians to Christians is the significant block to consider for unity. Because you have to remember that Jews hated Gentiles in the first century. And so for Gentile Christians to give sacrificially to Jews was a supreme act of unity. They were supporting those who most, uh, who were formerly at least most opposed to them. So giving in this regard brought the whole church together. It was loving your former enemy. And as they supported those whom they should have hated, They showed Christ's love and set an example for us. Now, the thing is, we don't have this particular cause for a collection anymore. But our collection still, nonetheless, supports our unity as a church. Our giving goes to keep the church established and functioning and to support the needs of, of Christians in want within our own congregation and sometimes outside it. And so we gather on the Lord's Day. And we do so because it is a day for unity. It is not simply an opportunity to hear teaching. It's not a Bible study. It's not a university lecture. It is Christian worship where we should be together and express that through practical means, the foremost being here in the same room under the same proclamation of God's unified word. Let's think about our second point, a trip for unity. And to console you at this moment, these next two points are far shorter. So uh, what we're going to do is be quick. We're, we're going we're gonna to stay focused sharply because there's a lot of details here, but but not all of them get get to a practical or doctrinal point. And so we're going to focus on our plea for unity and we're just going to note a textual point and jump quickly to application. That's the strategy for this point and the next. So in verses 5 to 11, Paul tells of his plans to come to Corinth. 
It's about travel plans. So you see why this is a trip for unity. Right? And, and he's organizing his schedule so that, and this is the part that, that really should catch us, verse 7, he's scheduling his, his time so that he can spend devoted time with them. For I do not want to see you now, now after this really difficult letter I've written you, I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Because Paul has spent the bulk of this letter, right? If we've been paying attention, he spent the bulk of this letter raking them over the coals to some degree of intensity or other, depending on the section. And here he swivels to say, and after all this, I'm going to make sure we get some quality time together. He's also sending, as, as you look on in this section, he's also sending essentially his closest companion, Timothy, to be with them. I can't make it yet, but my best friend, my closest companion and colleague, he's coming. And so Paul is making sure that these Christians who've taken a, a couple of difficult knocks in this epistle and being corrected, he's making sure that in the wake of that, they have fellowship. Even with people who have corrected them. Now, what do we do with this? Well, I think we too realize that unity requires presence. Not presence as in gifts, but your presence. We have to invest ourselves. Now, here's the thing. Like, some of this is so easy. When you're with someone, don't be somewhere else. That's typically a a decision that we make to communicate awareness, whole presence, and care. This is the moment where I am, and it's with you during our time together. And we need to note that Paul is making this time investment with those who've been a little bit at odds with him. So so let's make sure to, to reach out to someone in church who maybe we don't know as well. Make a call, send a message, ask for a coffee with somebody that's not the guy or lady that you drift immediately to. Notice how Paul didn't wait for them to approach him, but is going after them. I'm going to come to you. Not, you're welcome to send some people to me if you like. I'm coming. I'm going to spend time with you. Now, I... You know, I know of one instance uh, during my time as a pastor that, like, I mean, I felt so uncomfortable reaching out to someone because I knew that they were really irritated with me. And it didn't fix the situation at the end of the day. I, I have significant regrets about that. And so let's not follow my example there. Let's follow Paul's suit. And reach out to someone with whom we may need to deepen our Christian fellowship. It's good for unity. Paul took a, a trip for unity to Corinth. And we said, what trip can we take to increase our unity?
Maybe it's the other side of London. Maybe it's the other side of the house. Maybe it's the other side of this church. Whatever it may be. Where can we, what trip can we take to increase our unity? That brings us to our final point. A strategy for unity. Strategy for unity. So this last section in verses 12 to 24 is where Paul rounds up some points about his co-laborers in ministry. And in verses 15 to 18, he commends Stephanus and some other believers from Corinth for coming to him. So some of them have come to see him. He's noting how some Christians have already reached out to mend the gap in their relationship after the Corinthians wanted to reject him for a fancier preacher. Verses 19 and 20 make the same point in another direction, right? Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, the nickname here, greet them. They should, after all, uh, be deep in affection, even, even in our greetings among Christians. But what I really want to highlight here, we've, we've bullet-pointed a couple of names there, but what I really want to pull out from this text is Apollos. 12, and, 12 to 14. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He'll come as he has the opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now, if we remember, we th- this is loaded. If we remember back to the early uh, chapters in this letter, although others were involved, it, it seemed clear that Apollos was really the competition against Paul for the most preferred preacher. Not, not because of content, not because one of them didn't get the gospel right, but because of rhetoric and rhetorical skill and style. And now I want to highlight how both Paul and Apollos respond to the Corinthians' attempt to prefer one of them. And I think this actually is, is kind of shaking if we consider what really happens here in light of the situation. Paul urges his competition, urges, strongly urges his competition to go bless the congregation. You see that he strongly promoted him to do this. Paul maintained church unity by not letting his ego get in the way. Sometimes, sometimes we have to take the hit and let someone else get the spotlight to benefit the church. We have to look, not after our own ego, but after the benefit of the whole congregation. What can be good for them? And that's that's how Paul responded. But how did Apollos also respond? He said, I'm not going to go right now. Not not yet. Not in the middle of this. Not when they have set us against one another. He's not going to let his ego be stroked when it might come between him and Paul. Sometimes we have to give up the spotlight or miss an opportunity like this to stick by a brother or sister and support them in the way they need. Apollos did the right thing 
by not riding the fame wave and standing in support of Paul. And so, we too should look for ways to stand by brothers and sisters when there may be an opportunity to, uh, to increase our own good. We may have that opportunity, but how can we stand in, in support of brothers and sisters? So Paul and Apollos had a strategy for unity, thinking about one another as they handled this situation. Now, as we come to the end of this letter, here's the thing, if we can circle back to the beginning of where we started tonight, it would be far easier for the Mars candy to make bags of M&Ms that are one color. Just saves a lot, doesn't it? Time making lots of colors, whatever it costs to put that coating on there, different ways. But they know that that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's worth the effort to get all the colors in the same bag to make it right. And when we think about our church, very literally, there are a lot of colors at LCPC which is a beautiful, wonderful thing and a privilege that I do not for granted as a pastor, that we have people from so many different places in this congregation. But on top of how we visibly come from different places, there's also the rainbow of cultures, personalities, and concerns too. And it takes a bit of effort to keep us all in the same bag happily. But 1 Corinthians shows us that it's, it's worth that effort. Because Christians are called to be together. We are meant to give our love to one another. We are meant to be a beautiful mixture, kept in the same place, refining each other, helping each other, caring for each other. Because after all, right... M&Ms are different on the outside, but at the end of the day, they're the same on the inside, aren't they? That they all, whatever the arguments made, they all taste the same, however they appear. And so too, Christians here appear very different, but right there in the middle, we're all just hearts that love the Lord Jesus. He's the foundation of the church, our unity, because in him we have, we find the forgiveness of our sin, the help of his spirit, and enough love and acceptance to love and accept each other. Let's pray. Father God, this has been a long letter, and we've spent a long time with it, and we thank you for it. And we thank you that we are not a church ravaged by division, uh, by, by gossip, by things that come between us. But Lord, like all the blessings that we have, we should not take it for granted. We do not presume on your grace, but know that you give us this gift indeed by grace. And so we pray that you'd sustain it amongst us. But we also know that that doesn't happen by accident. 
So help us, Lord, to think through these things. What are the ways that we reach across the divide, however small they might be, however difficult they might be? What are the ways that we can reach across the divide to support and care for our brother or sister? We pray that we do that not as as a, a new law, as a burden, as a, as a way to be a Christian, but indeed because we are tied together in the Lord Jesus by faith. He is the foundation of your church. On him we stand. In him we find our rest. And in him we are knit together. And so we pray in his name. Amen.